Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. My next guest is William R. Rhodes, better known to, as Bill Rhodes to uh, listeners of this program. He is the author of Banker to the World, Leadership Lessons from the Frontlines of Global Finance. Uh, he has held a variety of senior and executive positions at a Citigroup and Citibank from 1957 until his retirement in 2010. But he's been busy in retirement, writing books and serving on a variety of boards and he joins us here in our 1130 studios. Bill, it's a pleasure to have you here. And I want to do something slightly different because, you know, normally it's a back and forth thing. But I think in this context, you actually have met and spent time with the world leaders of the countries we're going to talk about. So I'm just going to give you a topic and I want you to offer the detail that you have because, as I said, you've sat with people who are in charge in the room and you know them, you know how they think. I want to begin with China, trade, and tariffs in the United States. Tell us about what's going on, you believe, behind the scenes. Well, first of all, it's always great to be on with you, Pim. I think uh, the so-called skirmish that we're on with China and trade is starting to harden uh, into what could be a, a difficult trade war. And both sides think they have an advantage uh, I think the United States uh, under Trump feels that uh, with our economy growing so strongly, as I always tell you, I think we're in the Goldilocks period here. A year from now, I don't think we are, we, we will be. And so they, they in the administration feel they have an advantage, and particularly since uh, the Chinese export uh, about $500 billion to us, and, and you know we do 130 or 40 uh, with them. The problem is there are so many other things that are tied into into this, and of course uh, we need China with our discussions with North Korea. So it's not all one-sided. At the same time, the Chinese have problems with their own economy. They have a very high debt-to-GDP level, reaching almost 300 percent of debt-to-GDP. Uh, they still haven't controlled the shadow banking situation. There are a lot of weak, smaller banks, particularly in North uh, Northeast China. Uh, they're still tied in with the old steel making and things like that. Uh, and the state-owned enterprises uh, still have not been properly, uh, I think, dealt with. Uh, and, and, and a good portion of the economy is still dependent in China on those things. So the Chinese have to get to economic reform or they're going to have a problem with their own economy. And at the same time, they now have to face off with the United States uh, on trade. So I think it is a, uh, it's a difficult situation. Of course, we have the all-powerful, if you want to call him Emperor Xi Jinping, but he still has to deliver to his people. Uh, and uh, there, are signs, there are signs now that growth is slowing down in China, uh, and this makes it all the more difficult. So the question is, are we going to sit down eventually with China and work something out? It looks like for the moment that doesn't seem to be what's in the cards. I think... Uh, Medium term, we're going to have to do so because the world economy will be affected, not just uh, China's and our own, but I think the world economy, because we're talking about the world's two largest economies. Tell us about the link between China, the International mm -hmm. Monetary Fund, and the debts that other countries have incurred because they have borrowed money from China and now 
can't pay it back. Well, I think um, what you're referring to is the One Belt, One Road, um, which stretches now to, depending on what list of countries you look at, some people say 50, 60, 70 countries, starting uh, in Asia, but now into Africa uh, and uh, the Middle East and, and even now in parts of, uh, of, of South America. And the problem there is that uh, uh, these projects supposedly are funded by the Chinese uh, Development Bank, the Chinese Exim Bank, and, uh, and private uh, uh, public SOE-type banks. But they're running up tremendous debt. Pakistan, for instance, is in, uh, has borrowed or is planning to borrow up to $60 billion from the Chinese for infrastructure. And the question is, here's an economy that's in deep trouble. They have a new uh, they they have a new elected uh, government uh, with Imran Khan, and he's facing the idea of how he's going to be able to deal with his economy, which has basically run out of reserves. So the logical thing is you go to the International Monetary Fund, of which we're the largest shareholder, and you ask for a bailout, just like Argentina got a fifty billion dollar bailout a couple of months ago, and Turkey may have to get one going forward. And the question is, does the United States? want the IMF and other institutions, the World Bank, uh, the Bretton Woods institutions, to be bailing out these uh, clients of the One Belt, One Road for China? And the answer is, I don't think so. Bill Rhodes, let's continue, let you continue <clears throat> on China because you want to make note of a change in the disposition of the Chinese economy. Right. I think most people grew up with the idea that China was was really... Uh, very dependent on their exports. But the truth is, uh, five years ago, 50% of the economy uh, was based on exports. Today, the latest figures I saw a couple of months ago, uh, it's 77.8% is domestic consumption. So they feel that they are in a stronger position than they would have been a few years ago. Uh, we'll see what happens uh, because, as I mentioned, they still have those problems with their uh, domestic economy in the sense of debt to GDP and reorganizing state-owned enterprises, et cetera. Let's hope this thing gets settled in the next six months or so uh, because we're already talking, you know, figures that get into uh, $50 billion we're talking, then we're talking about $100 billion, and then uh, $200 billion and et cetera. And uh, President Trump said the other day that if necessary, he'll go to 500 billion, which means we won't we won't take any Chinese exports. So uh, we'll see how that works itself out. I want you to just continue <clears throat> your thought that links China, the International Monetary Fund, and countries that request money from the International Monetary Fund. And I want to bring in Turkey. Tell us what you believe is going on. Well, I think in, <clears throat> in the case of Turkey. Uh, they are in a very difficult spot, uh, which they've been in before. I helped uh, <clears throat> them work their way out of problems in 1994 when they had their first and only uh, female uh, premier, uh, Janice Uchiller, uh, to get an agreement with the International Monetary Fund because in the case of, of Turkey, the tendency is they borrow short-term in dollars, uh, both the banking system and the private sector. It's not so much the sovereign and uh, anytime they, they, there's a problem of confidence, uh, these lines are withdrawn and they leave them high and dry. The worst crisis was 2001, uh, and uh, they were very fortunate because Turkey at the time put in Kemal Dervish, who had been a vice president of the World Bank, who was a first-rate economist and knew how to get things done. Uh, but uh, we had a new government uh, with the Bush administration, uh, and... Uh, 
we had a new secretary uh, of the Treasury, O'Neill, who felt that uh, uh, countries that had problems to just go bankrupt and they should not be bailed out. And he, uh, in, in discussions I had with him, he said, you know, Bill, if, if I were there when Mexico and Argentina had their problems, uh, I would have just told them to go get to go into bankruptcy like we have to in the uh, in the business sector. Right, because he was sector. from Alcoa, Paul O'Neill. Exactly, uh, into the, uh, uh, as we do in the private sector. Anyway, the uh, the head of the International Monetary Fund at the time, Horst Kohler, came to me because he couldn't get a meeting with, uh, with O'Neill, uh, with Paul, uh, because Paul said, you know, he's just going to come here and ask for us to support these bailouts. And uh, <clears throat> what I pointed out uh, to, uh, to Paul was I thought in Turkey, who had a new government, a new uh, finance minister, World Bank trained, and he was prepared to take the tough steps to rationalize the economy before the IMF uh, put one dime in there. And so the point was, if they didn't carry forth uh, the reforms that were promised by the government at the time, the Esavit government, and particularly Kemal Dervish, then the fund promised it wouldn't, uh, it wouldn't give any money. So this was worked up to, to bring these reforms forward before any money was uh, dispersed. And so I acted as a amicus curiae entry be, between uh, Turkey, the International Monetary Fund, and the U.S. Treasury. Fortunately, it worked out, and uh, for many years, Turkey had a booming economy. But the one thing they didn't resolve, which is getting at them again— is all of this borrowing in foreign currency uh, by the private sector, and a lot of it short-term, and the banking sector. And so when you have a loss of confidence, is what you have now, because uh, uh, the financial community, uh, both, I think, primarily internationally, but even somewhat domestically, is very concerned about uh, the economic policies of, of President Erdogan, who was just re-elected as the strongest head of state since Kamal Ataturk. When the, when the modern Turkish Republic was founded. Do you believe that Turkey will get money from the International Monetary Fund? Uh, first of all, they have to ask for it, but they may be forced to just like Argentina because, just take a look, they announced uh, three, three or four months ago that inflation wouldn't get more than 7 or 8%. It's already at a 16% run and growing. Uh, and uh, the, uh, the currency has depreciated almost 30% in the, uh, since, uh, since May. And so I think the, uh, the whole economy is, is under siege. And, of course, President Erdogan says the way to cure inflation is to just keep interest rates low. Well, you keep interest rates low and the central bank doesn't intervene to support the currency or, or raise its rates, uh, people are just going to pull even more. And so I think they're caught in a real bind. And so... There are two possibilities. One, they put on capital controls, uh, which I think would be the wrong signal. Second, they start pushing through the reforms, including let the, letting the central bank uh, raise interest rates, uh, you know, to kill this inflationary spiral they're in. Or uh, the third thing is they go to the International Monetary Fund, which would, you know, insist that they, uh, that they start fighting inflation and, and make other reforms that are necessary. Fortunately or unfortunately, Erdogan has put his son-in-law as a treasury and economic minister, and so people are very concerned that you won't have an independent authority 
uh, running uh, the economic side of his administration. So there's a lot of lack of confidence. So I think what you need to do is to have this government do what the past two governments that I met when they were last under crisis, uh, where I worked in 1994 and 2001, to take these reforms and, if necessary, uh, go to the IMF for a standby line. What they should not do uh, would be to slap on capital controls, because I think that would just exacerbate the lack of confidence that already is existing. I want to give you 20 seconds, and I know it's tough. Pick one thing that you're doing now that you're supporting that is outside of the banking arena. Well, uh, unfortunately, my beautiful wife, Louise, uh, died two years ago of glioblastoma. Uh, and uh, you knew Louise, and uh, we battled it for two years. And so I've set up uh, a, a center at New York Presbyterian Hospital to fight this terrible disease, the first in the world. There are many, there are many uh, hospitals that have centers for neurology, but not one for just glioblastoma. So I spend a lot of time on that. Thanks very much. Bill Rhodes, President, Chief Executive, William R. Rhodes, Global Advisors, author of Banker to the World. One of the deals today that has gone bad is Sinclair Broadcasting's bid to become a nationwide operator. It's collapsed as Tribune Media withdrew from the planned merger and it's actually suing for a billion dollars in Delaware courts. Here to tell us more about these two media giants is Porter Bibb, managing partner for MediaTek Capital Partners. He joins us here in our 1130 studios. Porter, a pleasure, as always, to have you. I'm just going to let you run on these topics because there are so many of them we've got to get through. Sinclair Broadcasting and Tribune Media, what happened and why? Well, there there are two levels to this story, or at least to the explanation of why uh, uh, Tribune pulled out. Basically, the FCC under Ajit Pay wasn't going to approve the consolidation of Tribune and, and Sinclair, to which was, would have created the nation's largest television station network, primarily because Sinclair had been very open about wanting to compete as a radical conservative network going head-to-head with Fox News. Um, nobody knows why Mr. Pei changed his mind because he's been very pro-business and, and no interference uh, from all of the other major consolidations that he's had to oversee in his tenure as a chairman of the FCC. It's possible that somebody at the Justice Department persuaded him to look hard at the Sinclair consolidation uh, since they are appealing the Time Warner AT&T combination. And I don't think they're going to get anywhere, but that that seems to be the sense that the government is taking on large media uh, combinations. Is print media dead? Print media is another story altogether because we've had another broken deal uh, this morning. Tronk, which owns the major Tribune newspapers in uh, seven major metropolitan areas, uh, walked away from uh, a deal that would have uh, put uh, those newspapers in the hands of a, a private equity company. Um, there, there really uh, is no explanation other than the fact that financing for that for that transaction was that the statement was that it was impossible to complete. So they, both parties, walked away. Um, 
somebody is going to get those newspapers because uh, the L.A. Times new owner has shown what can happen when you put an enlightened management and, and get the community behind the paper and respect the fact that journalists, whether they're in print or on the Internet, um, are a vital asset to the community and hardly the enemy of the people. Uh, he's making a real go of, uh, of the L.A. Times. He brought Norman Perlstein in, one of the most uh, experienced and capable and proven uh, newspaper and editor managers in the country, um, and he's going to start making profit in the next uh, 12 to 18 months from a paper that uh, Trunk, when they owned it, uh, had decimated both the newsroom and and the the business side of uh, that that company. Um, You're going to see more and more enlightened ownership. The New York Times today reported $24 million profit primarily from their digital side. Um, Jeff Bezos owns the Washington Post, and he's had eight consecutive quarters of profitability. And those demonstrate that print is not dead, but it depends on who is owning the print to, to keep it alive. Fox and Disney, 21st Century Fox and the Walt Disney Company. And then you got a mix in, of course, <laughs> Comcast and Sky Broadcasting. Well, that's it. Right now, uh, Fox owns 39% of Sky. Sky is uh, the holy grail, uh, according to Bob Iger. He needs it to finish taking ESPN globally. ESPN has uh, lost its franchise, in, or let's say it's losing it rapidly in the cable industry domestically. It has virtually no uh, revenue generation outside the U.S. If he can acquire the rest of Sky for Disney, he can take ESPN Global, and he can add Sky's sports rights. They own the rights to the Premier League soccer, the Formula One racing, and a whole slew of other European major sports rights. So it, it's really important for him to do it. Yesterday, the UK regulators gave Bob Iger a big step forward to complete the transaction of taking control of Sky. They said Fox does not have to go for 100%, they, they have 39, and all they have to do is get to 51 and bid for that. And the, if they do, which they will, they'll have to pay up a little bit, but not anything like the 35 or $36 billion that it would cost them if they had to buy the whole of Sky. Then Disney gets it and puts ESPN around the world. The, 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 the odd irony of that whole situation is that uh, Brian Roberts keeps getting whacked by Bob Iger. Uh, eight, ten years ago when he tried to take over Disney, Bob Iger was not happy. They've been at each other's throats ever since, and Sky is going to be another loss for Roberts, but there's one more yet to come, and that's Hulu. Uh, Disney now owns 60% of Hulu. Comcast has 30%. Uh, Disney can squeeze them out if they want, and it's going to be a sad day for Mr. Roberts because there's not much he can do about that. Another topic, Viacom and CBS. Uh-huh. Aha. <laughs> I, I think the easiest uh, way to summarize that situation is Sherry wins. Um, it's going to be a long bitter struggle for Les Moonves, but uh, he he is suing her in the Delaware Chancellor Court. He's going to lose that battle. He's trying to reduce her control of 80% of the voting shares to 20% or less. Uh, he's not going to 
prevail there. But more importantly, uh, I don't think he's going to prevail at CBS. I think Les Moonves, uh, at some point, uh, when the uh, outside legal investigations are concluded, um, first Jeff Figger is going to go from CBS News. He's actually already said he's not returning from his vacation quite yet. Uh, I think Les Moonves will take the money and run, and then Sherry will combine Viacom and CBS, sell them probably to Verizon, which is very interested, and be done with it. All right. This is not necessarily media, but it sure has grabbed media attention around the world. Elon Musk and <laughs> Tesla. How can you do what Elon Musk did and stay out of jail, or at least stay out of being uh, banned from the securities industry by the SEC? The toothless SEC has done nothing. There are already a half dozen class action suits being organized by some of the aggressive litigators against Elon and, and Tesla for his failure to identify the financing source that he said he had lined up to take Tesla private. It's outrageous that he can play the stock market that way. But my sense is he was so moved by the shorts that he had to take vengeance and he got it. As always, thank you very much. Porter Bibb, managing partner, MediaTek Capital Partners on the swirl of media and headlines in the news. A confrontation between Canada and not the United States, between Canada and Saudi Arabia. Here to tell us about this feud and its implications is Paul Wiebe. He is a research fellow at the Daniel Morgan Graduate School of National Security in Washington, D.C. He is also the former vice president of the Liberal Party of Canada under the prime ministership of Pierre Elliott Trudeau. Paul Wiebe, thank you very much for being here. Can you outline for us what you believe to be the ultimate issue that exists between Canada and Saudi Arabia, and why? Good morning, Pim. And you're absolutely correct. It's high noon between Saudi Arabia and Canada. Totally unexpected, but a high drama indeed. And one of the two is going to have to blink. So the genesis of all this is, uh, I'm sure much of your audience knows, is a tweet that was sent out uh, the end of last week by the Canadian foreign minister, demanding that human rights activists in Saudi Arabia who were recently arrested be released. So the Saudis reacted and reacted in a way that was totally uh, unanticipated by the markets or, or by the government of Canada. And they've taken a whole series of actions, really draconian measures, in fact. And, um, and they've placed in jeopardy a, uh, some major, major um, uh, trade uh, uh, agreements between Canada and Saudi Arabia. So where do we stand right now? We stand, um, we're looking at a, a Canadian government that does not have any support from its traditional allies like the U.S., the U.K., and the EU. And the Canadians are out there uh, twisting in the wind. And they've taken a lot of body blows from the Saudis, including um, the Saudis selling off of assets, uh, stopping airline flights between the two countries, uh, pulling out 12,000 students from Canada, 
uh, cessation of the sale of wheat and barley, large volumes of those uh, commodities being shut down. And the major issue here is a $14 billion arms deal between Canada and Saudi Arabia, which I believe is in jeopardy because yesterday my Saudi foreign minister, Minister Al-Jabbar, said there's nothing to mediate, a mistake has been made, and should be corrected. And if it's not corrected, the uh, kingdom will consider additional measures against Canada. That's pretty ominous, you know. So I think there's a lot here between the two countries, and I think the Canadians may have blinked this morning because they're reaching out to the Emiratis, UAE, to try and back-channel into Saudi Arabia and find a way to cool things down. Do you believe that the leadership of Canada in the Prime Minister Trudeau, do you believe that he expected this to happen? No, I don't believe it. And here, here is where I think there is criticism warranted of the tweet that the foreign minister sent on uh, Friday. Um, what she was This is the foreign minister of Canada. No, no, the foreign minister. The foreign I, minister. I beg your pardon. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yes. The foreign minister sent out the tweet. And here's the issue. Uh, the tweet was a clear manifestation or expression of an overt values-driven foreign policy, which, when you're dealing with a kingdom like Saudi Arabia, could lead to disaster. In this case, it has led to disaster. The, the operational word is overt. <laughs> you can have a, a values-driven foreign policy, but when dealing with Saudi Arabia in particular, one has to be discreet. One has to engage in diplomatic dialogue, work behind the scenes. In this case, that wasn't done. So I think. Do you know why? Said, Do you have any idea why? Uh, why the tweet was sent out? Why, well, yeah. Why was this done in public? I mean, isn't yeah. there a tradition of back-channel, behind-the-scenes foreign policy discussion if you have a problem? Absolutely. Um, Pim, I, I worked at, uh, with the Canadian Embassy in Beirut. These guys are, you know, uh, top-tier professionals. They know how to back-channel. They know how to engage in quiet and effective diplomacy. I have the utmost regard for the Canadian Foreign Ministry um, and their diplomats. Um, but in this case, I think the Foreign Minister, uh, possibly because of a lack of experience uh, in that part of the world, sent out this this tweet, and, and the Saudis reacted. And you could have predicted that reaction, in fact. Uh, so having this sort of overt foreign policy using tweets. Now, you could get away with it if you're Donald Trump, if you're the United States, or if you're a major power like Russia or China. But when you're a middle-range power like Canada, no, you cannot be as overt and in-your-face with a values-driven type of foreign policy. All right. So, if the foreign ministry, the foreign minister of uh, of Canada, if you get a call from maybe even the prime minister's office, and they say, "Paul Weeby, what should we do now?" What would you say? Well, uh, I would I would engage in uh, immediate discussions between the prime minister and the crown prince Mohammed bin Salman, who's the decision maker in, in, in this particular area, and I would indicate to the um, crown prince, that we Canadians, you know, we believe in our values, we believe in the release of human rights activists, but we're not going to embarrass you publicly. We're not going to uh, dictate 
uh, how you run your own domestic issues. And uh, we're going to look for a way to uh, climb down from, from this uh, uh, confrontation. We cherish a good relationship with Saudi Arabia, but we also cherish democratic values. But this sort of thing, uh, diplomacy by tweet will not continue. Thanks very much for being with us. Paul Wiebe, Research Fellow, Daniel Morgan Graduate School of National Security in Washington, D.C. Coming up, we'll be talking about China, trade disputes, and the United States. This is Bloomberg. Joining me now is Brooke Sutherland, our Bloomberg Opinion Deals and Industrials columnist. And Brooke, you've been busy because today is the day, I guess, we'll where old deals go to die. I, I mean, really. Apparently. I mean, yeah, right. <laughs> Tribune and Sinclair, no. Rite Aid and Albertsons, no. Uh, although we got a couple of others that might be a yes, maybe done in Bradstreet. But go ahead. What is going on? No, I mean, there has been a lot of deals that have died lately. Um, and, you know, they're all sort of for different reasons. Uh, you know, in the case of Tribune Sinclair, the issue is regulatory or rather mismanagement of the regulatory process. And in the case of Rite Aid Albertsons, you know, I think shareholders just felt like they weren't getting that great of a deal. Now, the question in Rite Aid's case is whether there's really any winning scenario they tried, here for I the mean, company. Hasn't Rite Aid tried repeatedly to combine with I mean, Boots, uh, Walgreens, with Boots Walgreens, Alliance. yes, and that deal was was blocked on regulatory grounds. So Walgreens ultimately ended up buying a smaller package of Rite Aid stores. So, let, all right. So uh, it, the Rite Aid deal is off because the shareholders really just want more money. Yes, and okay. now the question is whether or not right, they're going they're to get, get it. it. Yeah. Yes, and okay. what the company's standalone prospects are, because at this point, you know, Rite Aid is a significantly smaller drugstore competitor at a time when a lot of its biggest rivals are diversifying into other areas, buying pharmacy benefit managers, for example, or insurers or different things like that. And it's just not really clear how Rite Aid is going to compete with that. Okay, now let's do Tribune and Sinclair Broadcasting. What happened? You know, all of the reporting that I've seen on this is the FCC really bent over backwards here to try to make this deal possible. They revived this old regulatory loophole that would allow Sinclair to buy more stations without bumping up over the national ownership limits. But even with that modification, that sort of loosening of the rules, Sinclair still had to sell some stations. And the proposals that it made for divestitures were just unworkable. A lot of times it was trying to sell, you know, TV stations to people who were affiliated with this chairman but didn't have any experience running a TV station or they were selling it to people who had ties to his family and family companies. And so, I mean, this is just really sort of a blatant disregard for the regulatory process and the, and the rules that we have in place here. And so it got to the point that the FCC said, we can't sanction this. We feel like we've been misled. They sent it to an administrative hearing which historically has been tantamount to a death sentence for deals because that just tends to drag on for a very long time. So Tribune is saying, we've had enough. We feel like you you know, did not follow through on your end of the merger agreement. You did not take every reasonable effort to win regulatory support and, in fact, sort of took you know, harmful <laughs> efforts to try to win regulatory approval. So they're backing out and suing Sinclair. They want a billion. They want a billion dollars now, they right? They do. They want a lot of damages, and I, you know, frankly, they they seem to have an argument here, just given how this all played out. What kind of assets does Tribune have that are going to be worth 
money to somebody else. So they have TV stations. And it was interesting because at the time that the Sinclair deal was agreed to, there were a number of different companies that were interested in Tribune. Nexstar is one of those. Fox and Blackstone were contemplating a joint bid. There were a number of private equity firms in the mix. So I think there's definitely a distinct possibility that now this asset is back on the market, you could see other buyers come forward who are willing to be a little bit more reasonable in going through the regulatory process and possibly getting a deal done. What happens at Sinclair Broadcasting? You know, I don't think they're done either as far as M&A, and maybe they've learned some lessons from this experience and can get back to it. But I'm not really sure what assets are out there that would make as big of a difference for them as Tribune. I don't really see them buying Nexstar. I'm not, that deal just doesn't seem feasible at all. You'd have to divest so many stations that that just, that doesn't make sense. So you're talking about probably a lot smaller deals versus one big bite. Just quickly, is it, is there any lingering animosity? Does that linger in Washington, D.C. at the Department of Justice and the Trade Commission? I think so. And, I, you know, some of the reporting has pointed to there was a different issue that the FCC fined Sinclair for something. And rather than just taking what was a relatively small fine over sort of a bureaucratic issue, they fought that really aggressively. And they were really pushy on that. And I think that, you know, made people at the FCC feel uncomfortable. And I think those feelings do linger for a while. Thanks very much. Thank always you. a pleasure. Brooke Sutherland, a Bloomberg Opinion Deals and Industrials columnist, uh, always expert uh, on the world of combinations, and in this case, busted combinations. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.